Well, good morning. <coughs> it's really good to be here. Uh, for the record, uh, Whoppers and ravioli. <laughs> so now you, you no questions anymore about about what my favorite candy or foods are. Uh, when I was, in fact, do we, can I tell this story? Um, I come from a small town in uh, western Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh, and lots of uh, ethnic groups kind of together in one community. Uh, my grandfather comes from uh, his family, extended families from the Czech Republic. My grandmother uh, from Italy. Uh, so there's lots of interesting things about our community. I don't know why I'm telling the story, but uh, lots of interesting things about our community. We had things like uh, Italian festival where they would shut down the town and they would have street food, you know. And anyway, there's in, in our town, the town's name is Belvernon, and there was a, uh, there's these, a club. There's a, every ethnic group had a club. The Italians, the Polish club, the Germans, they all had a club. Well, the Italian club in town was the Garibaldi Club. And they made ravioli, I think it was like Tuesday night or something like that. And you can go and get a ravioli plate, but then also people would bring their pots and pans from home and line up outside and, the, and you know, the women in the kitchen would be making ravioli and you can go and they'd fill up your pot and they'd take it home. It was crazy. Um, that one's for free. I didn't plan on telling that story, but the favorite food thing just got me on that. So ravioli is my favorite thing. Uh, it really is great to be here with you. We had a great conversation with some of you folks this morning already. Uh, over breakfast, and Rob and I are excited to be here. Uh, I, I just want to give a disclaimer, I guess, of sorts. Uh, in terms of the sermon this morning, I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone. Um, so I, I, my normal habit, I'll say it like this, my normal habit is to take a particular text of Scripture and preach through that text. When I was a pastor in Yorktown, my habit was to go through entire books of the Bible from the beginning of the book to the very end. And I think almost always that's probably the better way to do it. I, I, I think it's just very helpful and it makes sense to me. And so my disclaimer is I'm not going to do that today. And so I'm, I'm out of my comfort zone and I, I just wanted you to be aware of that. Uh, I think every so often it's helpful to address a theme or a topic that we see in Scripture uh, and, and to do that, you have to kind of go to different places in the Bible to be able to see uh, that particular theme or topic. Uh, and so that instead of focusing on one text this morning, uh, I'm going to try to address a topic. And the theme that I want to address is the church, specifically the church as a family, the church as a family. Um, and before we get to the scripture, I want to give you a little bit of a background from me so maybe that will help you understand where I'm coming from in some of, of the passages that I go to and the things that I say about them. Um, I came to Christ in 1985. I was 14 years old. Uh, I was not raised in a Christian home. Now, we were, my family, we were members of the church in our community. Uh, we, my mother taught Sunday school uh, for a brief period of time. My dad preached at least one sermon at that church. Um, and yet I say to you that I was not raised in a Christian home. And you might be thinking that there's a little bit of a contradiction there. Um, I, I'm not, of course, I, I don't know that I can be 100% sure of where my parents are uh, with the Lord. But I know that uh, my mom, at her stage of life right now, she openly rejects the gospel. So, to me, 
I guess not being raised in a Christian home, the reason I never saw that as a contradiction, being members of the church, my mother teaching Sunday school, my dad preaching sermons, I think for me and our community, we probably had a little bit of a misunderstanding about what the church is. Um, To me, to be a member of a church meant that you attend regularly, you, you come to the meetings, you benefit from the church's services, you give money to the church, volunteer for church events, and that's what it meant to be a member of a church. And in my mind, in my thinking, that pattern of what membership was really applied to any other kind of thing that you might be a member of. In town where we were, we had a Lions Club, we had a Rotary Club, we had the VFW, the American Legion, and all of these organizations, I thought of the church as a social institution focused on Christianity, right? And then you have these other organizations in town that focus on other things. The VFW, the American Legion, talk about veterans affairs. Lions Club or the Rotary Club, uh, community service, education, things like that. But in every case, in my thinking, to be a member was to attend the meetings regularly, to benefit from the services that were offered, to give money, to volunteer for the events. Um, So, after I came to Christ, I think I began to grow in my understanding of Scripture, in my understanding of the things of God, but not so much in my understanding of the church. For many, many years, I really, it was a strange disconnect in my mind between being a Christian and being a part of a church. There was a disconnect there. I think that resulted from my misunderstanding. But somewhere along the line, I I first walked into, I was telling the folks this morning over breakfast that I walked into a Southern Baptist church for the first time in 1994. It was a small church plant in Newport News, Virginia. And that was really a turning point for me where I began to think differently about the church. But somewhere along the line in my Christian journey, It occurred to me that if somebody who actively and openly rejects the gospel can be an active member of the church, maybe it was time for me to reconsider what it meant to be a church member. So today I want to focus on just a few key passages that personally for me helped adjust my thinking and change the way I think about church membership, and I want to start in, in Mark chapter 3. I think we might have a slide of, of some of these. Mark chapter 3, uh, 31 to 35, and we'll camp out there for a few minutes, and it's my understanding that you've been going through the book of Mark together recently, so this should be a familiar passage to you, and I want to focus on just one aspect of Mark chapter 3, uh, 31 to 35, um, and I'll, I'll just read it from, I'm going to read from the New King James Version. Um, Jesus is there, um, just a little bit of the context, Jesus is there with his followers, right? And just not too many verses before this, if, you sort of, if you're looking at a Bible, you slide up and you see that in the middle of chapter 3, uh, he sets aside the 12, right? The 12 who would be with him, who would be his inner circle. Uh, he, he confronts uh, uh, the religious leaders, uh, all those sorts of things, but at one point in there, his, his family thinks he's out of his mind. And now at this point, in Mark 30, uh, chapter 3, verse 31, he's, he's together 
with them. And it says this, Then his brothers and mothers came, and standing outside they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, they're talking about Jesus, and they, they said to him, Look, your mother and bro- your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in the circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my mother and my sister and my brother. So now, to our 21st century ears, we might not get right away how radical and scandalous this would have been. I know for me, it's easy to miss. Uh, I don't think it sounds as radical to us as it would have to Jesus' audience. Historians tell us that the ancient world, uh, the world in which Jesus lived, the world of the New Testament, was one that was characterized by a strong group mentality. And what I mean by that is that the strong group, a person's identity, a person's livelihood, where they get material resources, a person's, uh, uh, where they, everything about their lives, that was the most important thing. The individual was never the most important thing. What, the most important thing was the group. And historians tell us that at the time that Jesus spoke these words, the most important group to any person in the culture would have been their family. Primarily, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. That, that, that brother and sister relationship would have been the very center of every person's life. That was the most important relationship that people had. This was the strong group. The group was more important than the individual. And everything about somebody's life revolved around their family. And again, keep in mind that not too many verses before there, you have Jesus doing these things, uh, setting aside these 12 who would be with him. And his family even says that he's crazy. They say he's, he's out of his mind for the kinds of things he's doing. Now, what, I mean, that doesn't make any sense unless we really understand what Jesus is doing here. Um, in, so, in, in the New Testament world, the family was the most important group, and the closest family bond, the closest bond that somebody would have considered when they think about their family, the closest relational bond was the bond between brother and sister. Now, this is unfamiliar to me. In my life, that is not, that's not familiar to me at all. When I think of myself, my identity, who I am, uh, especially when I was a new believer, what I thought of was myself, just me. I don't see myself as dependent on a group. I never saw myself as being attached to a group. Um, now, I do think, as a side note, I think my family is my most important group, but when I think of family, I think maybe even then, I'm thinking something different than what Jesus and his original audience would have thought. This idea of brothers and sisters being the closest bond, that's foreign to me. I have one sister, and in many ways, I barely even know her, right? So this is, when, when I try to put myself into the world of the New Testament, it's foreign to me. But this is the context that Jesus is speaking into. This is the context where the people understood everybody would have been coming out it the same way. Everybody in Jesus' audience would have understood they would have believed themselves to be attached to their family, and they would have seen their most important social bond to be the bond that they have between their brothers and their sisters, their natural brothers and sisters. So in effect, what Jesus is doing in this passage, in Mark 3, 31-35, when he says that, when his brothers and his mother come, and they say, Jesus, we're after you, and somebody comes in the room and says, Jesus, your mother and brother's here. When he says, who are my mother and brothers? And he looks around the room and says, here are my mother and brothers. 
That would have been scandalous. In essence, Jesus is saying that he has abandoned and turned his back on what everybody in the room would have thought was his most important group. And he was turning his back on it. So I think what Jesus is modeling in this passage, what Jesus is modeling in that turn away from his natural mother and brothers and sisters to this new group, is, in fact, what he is expecting of those who follow him. There's a loyalty conflict that arises. I think that's the first point that, I, that I'm confronted with here. There's a loyalty conflict that arises when Christ fo- calls someone to follow him, a loyalty conflict. Anyone who mu- wants to follow Jesus must abandon their, own, their old loyalties. And there's lots of passages in the New Testament that make this loyalty conflict abundantly clear. Think about, if you're in Mark, flip back a couple of pages to chapter 1, 16 to 20. It's also in Matthew 4, the same story. And you're probably familiar with this passage, where Jesus calls the disciples from the, from the shore, the fishermen, right? You know the story. He calls Simon and Andrew. They're casting their net in the sea, because they're fishermen. Jesus says, follow me, and I will what? Make you fishers of men. Exactly, you know the story. The next, the next couple of verses, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Now this is interesting, this next part. When he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who, were also, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, listen, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. This would have been scandalous. Scandalous horrifying to think that these two young men would abandon their father. Now think about this. This was before the social safety net, right? If you want to survive in the world, you are attached to your family. It's not just relationships. Of course, it's relationships. But in this world, James and John, people were depending on James and John to be fishermen. People in their extended family were depending on them to be fishermen. And when they abandon their father and leave their father in the boat with the hired servants, I mean, this is shocking. This is shocking that they would do this. And it's quite likely that some of James and John's extended family, who were not fishermen but did other things, it's likely that if the family couldn't recover from their absence in the family business, that lives would have been at stake. James and John understood that following Jesus was to abandon their old loyalties, the loyalty they had to their natural family. And a consequence of this abandonment would have been strife and turmoil in their family. Let's look at another example. I think we might have a slide of this one. Luke 9. Luke chapter 9. 59 to 62. Yeah. You probably know this story too. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. 
but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Again, I don't know what else, what other word to use besides scandalous. If you could think of a word that's worse than that, then we should be using that one to describe what's going on here. Right? Now, just what we know about the ancient world, it would have been bad enough for this man to abandon his brothers and sisters on any occasion. But to abandon their, his brothers and sisters at the occasion of his, their father's death? Wow. And, and maybe some of that comes over into our contemporary context, right? You can miss a lot of family functions, but you can't miss a funeral, right? But nevertheless, we see clearly from Jesus' own perspective the demands he placed on others that to follow Jesus was to abandon the old loyalty you had to your strong group. Matthew 10, this is, we don't have a slide about this one. Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Uh, Jesus says this, Do not think I came to bring, pre- bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Another one, similar. Luke 14, 25-33. Now great multitudes with him. And he turned, you probably know this one too. He turns to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I've got to be honest with you. My tendency when I see passages like this is to try to talk myself out of them, to try to soften them. Well, Jesus didn't really mean that. Don't you? Don't you have that reaction? I do. I, I, want, it to, I want it to seem less harsh than it seems when I read it. Okay, I can't resist the temptation. Do I think Jesus wants me to hate my parents? No, I do not. But see, I, the, I, can't, I can't resist the temptation of saying that because it's so harsh. And it would have been that, that harsh and more to his original audience. Jesus is describing here the worst possible thing somebody in that world could have imagined. Strife. Turning father against son. Daughter against mother. I had some rough spots with my mother-in-law, but I think Jesus had something in mind much worse than that. And the, and the people who were listening to Jesus say this, as bad as it sounds to our ears, it sounds much worse to them. Jesus was in effect saying, what you think is most important in life, I've come to mess that all up. You have Jesus saying this in the strongest possible terms of what it means for someone to follow him. For a person in the world of the New Testament This kind of family division was the worst possible thing that could have happened. To follow Jesus is to abandon your entire world. Everything about who you are. Your closest relationships torn apart. Risk your very life because it demands you abandon your old loyalties. But that's, I don't want to, I certainly don't want to stop there. There's another point that comes out very clearly in this Mark 3 passage. Let's, is there a way you could put the Mark 3 passage back up on there? Mark 3, 31 to 35. What's clear is that Jesus was not simply asking his disciples to abandon their family, their strong group. Rather, what's abundantly clear is Jesus was establishing a new group. 
Jesus was establishing a new group. And to follow Jesus, he was calling his followers to join that new group. To follow Jesus is to abandon loyalty and solidarity that they previously had to their natural family and transfer that loyalty to Jesus' new group. Again, let's, let's consider this passage. I'm going to read it again. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they sent to him, calling to him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, who is my mother and my, or my brothers? And he looked around in the circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So in responding to the situation that Jesus was confronted with, notice obviously, Jesus did not simply deny his mother and brothers. He didn't just say, Who, who are they? I don't know what you're talking about. No. Rather, Jesus proclaimed clearly that he had a new group. He had a new group. He no longer belonged to his natural family. He had a new family, and that family he belonged to. Those who were there with him, in a sense, were his surrogate siblings, his new brothers and sisters. There's a couple of things about my own experience that caused me personally to have a lot of difficulty with this. It caused me to struggle with this quite a bit. First, in my experience, when I was a child, as I became a believer in Christ, although we were members of a church, I never considered the church to be my strong group. Never. Our family, we, we attended the church, we were members of the church, as I described to you before, but we had a different group that was our strong group. We had some extended family, some other friends who weren't associated with the church, and that was our, our group. That's where there was solidarity and loyalty and the closest relational bonds. The church was not our strong group. The other thing about my experience that causes, has, uh, lets me have trouble with this is that what was emphasized to me in 1985 was my personal relationship with God. That's what was emphasized to me. So what I knew about Christianity... And I'm not sure if it was just American cultural influence or if it was a misunderstanding of the Christian life or whatever it was. I never saw my faith, my faith in Christ, as something that was particularly group-oriented. Now, no, don't get me wrong. Every, from the time I came to faith in Christ, I was always at a church. There was, I, you know, I went to college and did, did, moved to other towns and things of that sort. I was all, always some way connected to a church physically. But in my thinking, there was nothing about my Christianity, my faith in Christ, that was particularly group-oriented. It's important to note, though, that this loyalty conflict that Jesus is confronting us with, James and John at the boat, him modeling this here in this passage, it's important to note that the loyalty conflict that a Christ follower is faced with is not, well, I have to pick between God and my family. That's, I don't think that's at all the loyalty conflict. We, uh, we're good at this in America, right? We, we might say something like this. I've got my priorities straight. Number one is God, then my family, and then others, right? 
I've probably said that hundreds and hundreds of times in my life. But I have come to believe that that is not at all the priority list that Jesus is presenting us with. I think instead, the list of priorities that Jesus calls his followers to adopt is, number one, God and his family. Number two, others. Number one, God and his family. Number two, others. The loyalty conflict is not between God and my family, my natural family. The loyalty conflict is between my natural family or whatever my strong group is, since I I live in a different world than the Jesus original listeners here at this, right? Whatever my strong group is. It's a loyalty loyalty between my strong group and God's strong group, God's family, between my family and God's family. If you want to follow Jesus... You must know that Jesus demands that you join a new family. A new strong group where your undivided loyalty lies, where you experience solidarity, relational fulfillment, material resources. Of course, Jesus models this in the Mark 3 passage, but all through the Gospels we see uniformly. What do you know? Think about what you know about the New Testament. Uniformly we see Jesus and his followers acting like a family a strong group. They traveled together. They spent some time apart doing specific things, but you know what? When they did those things, it's because they were united in their mission and purpose. They had community property. They had a treasurer. Now, things didn't turn out so well for him, but they had a treasurer. Right? They had community property. All those markers that we see of the way Jesus lived life with the twelve and the others That is a a parallel to everybody else in the ancient world. They're brothers and sisters. They're family. That's how a family operates. Look at at Mark 10. You, You can just hear the distress in Peter's voice as Peter goes to speak to Mark in Mark chapter 10, 28 through 31. Just incidentally, it's also in Matthew 19, 27 and Luke 18, 28. Same account. Mark 10, 28. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Now listen, now once you begin to understand the perspective of somebody in the ancient world and and understand what Jesus was actually calling them to do, you can hear the distress in Peter's voice. We've left it all for you. We've left everything for you. Verse 29. Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the Gospels. I've got to push pause right there. What does this assume? This assumes that Christ followers abandon their mother, their brothers, their father, their lands, their household. So he says, Assuredly, I say, there is no one who has left house or brothers or father or, or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the Gospels Verse 30, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus, it's just as clear as it can possibly be. To follow Christ is, yes, there's a loyalty conflict that requires abandoning of your old strong group. But clearly, Jesus is saying, That those who follow him give up one set of priorities for a new set of priorities. Namely, his group. Fathers. or He doesn't say fathers, actually, which is an interesting point. 
He describes people, his followers receiving a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. What in the world is Jesus talking about? He is, quite simply, establishing his church. He's forming a new group, and this new group would become the focus of the life of the Christ follower. This new group is the house, the brothers, the sisters, the mother, the lands. Jesus has in mind here, it's clear now to me, that he's establishing a new group. And where it used to be, the person who is now a Christ follower used to, used to have the physical, the monetary, economic resources of their natural family. They used to have the strongest relational bond with their brothers and sisters. Coming to Christ causes an upset, a loyalty conflict. Jesus doesn't just leave them out there on their own at that point. There's a new group. There's a new group. And they, he's anticipating the time of the church age. Right? In my, in my mind, what's funny about this is in my mind, through my journey of faith, so many years that I spend, in my mind, completely disconnected the church from the teachings of Jesus. Completely disconnected. I never saw any connection between, you know, I think of Jesus as the good moral teacher. Right? You think about the Sermon on the Mount. You think of all these things. I never connected what Jesus taught with the church. Here it is. Here it is. It's amazing to me. Jesus, what I've come to understand is that Jesus himself instituted the church. Jesus himself established his church during his public ministry. What's also clear is that his followers understood this. Even after Jesus left, uh, we see immediately Jesus' followers continue the pattern that Jesus set down. I think we have a slide of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 40 to 45. This is, this is after Pentecost, right? Jesus ascends to be with the Father. And and. Pentecost comes. The disciples are all gathered and the Holy Spirit comes, right? And you, you're familiar with the story, I'm sure. People all, in Jerusalem from all over the world, the miracle occurred, right? And each person from whatever country they were from, whatever language they spoke, when they listened to the, the Jesus followers speak, you probably know this, right? They heard them in their own language. This miracle, right? They heard them in their own language. And then uh, Jesus stands up And he delivers this long sermon geared towards these Jews who had gathered from all over the world about how Jesus was the promised Messiah, showing clearly from the Old Testament that Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the promised Messiah. And then we're given their response, Acts chapter 2, just just before this passage. And I'm going to start reading in verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart, it says, and and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And here we are in this, verse, verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized And that day, about 3,000 souls were added. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now look, it's, we, it's important for us to connect those two things, right? In the first half of that, what do you have? You have people being saved. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. And what's the immediate result of the salvation? The Apostles' Doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers, miracles, selling their possessions and goods, and giving to those who had need. Uh, I'm highly influenced by a book I would commend to you called When the Church Was a Family by Joe Hellerman. And he says this, Salvation is a community-creating event. I think he's right. That's exactly what happens here. I must admit to you that for most of my Christian life, this passage in Acts that I just read was greatly troubling to me. I did, I did not understand what it was. I thought maybe the Bible was endorsing communism. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know what to make of it. I really didn't. But now, I've come this far, if we put this passage into its biblical and historical context, it begins to make sense, at least to me. People were being saved. They were coming to Christ and choosing to follow Him. These people knew. They had a complete understanding that to do that was indeed to turn their back on what was their entire world up to that point. They further understood that to follow Jesus was to join his group. I'm sure that you can imagine that a person in the ancient world who depended on their brothers and sisters for absolutely everything, that when they turn away from that, you have a whole bunch of new converts, it's very likely that a whole bunch of them lost their source of income. They lost the bed that they slept in every night and the roof that was over their head. So what what happens? They find themselves homeless and without a job. And that's often lost on us. At least it was lost on me for most of my Christian life up to this point. Why did some of them have to sell lands and houses? Because their new family members would have been poor and homeless because they decided to follow Christ. Imagine, if you will, that I had a vacation home on Smith Mountain Lake. I don't, I can assure you. But imagine I had a vacation home on Smith Mountain Lake. And let's say that someone at our home church, at North Wake Church, someone lost his job, couldn't pay his bills, and could no longer pay the mortgage on his own house. And let's say that I sold my vacation home and gave it to the, the, the money that I got to my friend so that his family could survive. Now, let, let's say that that all happened, and I called my mom on the phone. I talked to her regularly. Let's say I called her on the phone. I said, Mom, I just sold my house on Smith Mountain Lake. Of course, she'd say, why? And I would tell her, I'd say, well, someone at the church lost his job, couldn't afford to pay his bills, so I, I sold it and gave the money to him. What in the world would she say to me? She would say, are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? Why in the world would you do that? Okay, let me change the story a little bit. I have a vacation home, Smith Mountain Lake. Let's say my sister lost her source of income, wasn't able to pay her rent, wasn't able to pay her bills. And I sold my vacation home on Smith Mountain Lake and gave her the money. What would my mom's reaction be then? I would be, I would be the star of the family, right? I would be the hero. You do not sell 
houses and lands and give away the money to benefit, in our modern way of understanding it, a church member. You do that for family. You do that for your family. The setting of Acts chapter 2 was probably unimaginable turmoil and strife in the lives of these who turned to Christ, abandoned their loyalty to their natural family, and joined themselves to God's family. All through the New Testament, we see evidence of this. We see evidence that followers of Christ indeed understood that Jesus established his church, and the church was to be the primary focus of the Christian's loyalty. The church, in many ways, replaced the natural family. I think the most obvious indicator of this, you probably know well enough to know you know about the New Testament. What do you read when you read Paul, one of Paul's letters? How does he address the believers in the various churches he's writing? What word does he use to address them? Brothers. Brothers. I don't think that that's just a happenstance, a quirk, that he chose that word to address his fellow believers. Another evidence is, think of the instructions that Paul gives about how we're living. I think of passages like 1 Corinthians 7. Um. 1 Corinthians 7, you're probably familiar with it. He says in verse 10, Now to the married I command, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. A husband is not to divorce his wife. Um, Verse 12, the passage goes on to say, If a brother has a wife who doesn't believe and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who doesn't believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. What in the world is that all about? What in the world is that all about? Here you have what what I think is the obvious effect of this exchange of loyalty that's going on between the natural family and God's new family. What's going on here is that the Corinthians understood what Jesus was asking them, what they were called to do. When they became Christ followers, they knew that to join Christ was to join Christ's family. And so some of them probably got the wrong idea. Well, maybe I should divorce my wife then. It was a natural course of progression. They said, well, okay, I got to join God's family. So maybe I should divorce. And so Paul is correcting that mistake. But why would Paul have had to give that correction? Unless they already understood that the church was to be the most important thing in their lives. Do you see what I'm saying? In their minds, if I'm to join God's family, maybe that means I abandon my wife. And Paul is saying, no. If your unbelieving wife is willing to live with her, please, let her stay with her. The priority is crystal clear. They knew. They were joining a new family. And so Paul had to give these kinds of instructions all all through his letters to the churches about these kinds of things that come up And the only reason they make any sense at all, the only way that these kinds of instructions make any sense is if we have that conflict and people know that they are to join a new group, that joining Christ means joining a new group in a radical way. Another piece of evidence, I think, is that that the the church is to replace the natural family for believers. If you you get a a big picture of the New Testament, um, if, if you think about it, most of, especially Paul's letters, right, Most of the New Testament, unless we understand that the church is our new family, most of the New Testament is not written to us. 
Most of the New Testament doesn't make any sense. I think of passages like Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Right? Paul says, uh, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in your all. Apart from understanding the church as the new family to which believers belong, passages like that lose their force. In my experience as a young believer in the church where I was a member, there was simply no occasion at which I would have been required to bear with somebody else in love. We just didn't live that kind of a life together. The only way that this passage and others like it make sense is if we in the church are living life together. That's when you have to be concerned about bearing with one another in love and striving to keep the unity and the bond of peace. I realize, uh, again, I warned you up front that I'm out of my comfort zone. And in many ways, it's like skipping a rock across the surface of the pond, right? Uh, And I would just urge you, I suppose, um, especially if this sounds very strange to you, Uh, it's perfectly okay with me if you at first conclude that I must be the strange one. But I would urge you, I think, to maybe follow the pattern of the Bereans uh, and take take the time to to search the Scripture and to see whether any of what I've been saying is right or not. We can't get it all in in just a short period of time. It seems clear to me, though, that when Jesus saves somebody, this automatically results in the new believer Abandoning the old loyalties, whatever they are. For somebody in Jesus' time, it was their brothers and sisters. It's different for me. I'm sure it's different for everybody. Whatever the old loyalties are, are to be abandoned. Whatever group is your group, following Christ means joining a new group. Transferring loyalties and solidarities from one family to another family. For a follower of Christ, the relationship we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus intended that relationship to be the strongest, the most important one that we have. Let me close with this. Historians tell us that life was quite difficult for many new followers of Christ in this respect. There are stories recorded in history of new followers of Christ who found themselves out of a job, estranged from their family, some even in prison. Over and over again, these historical accounts written by those who are not believers, by the way, They were looking at the church from the outside in and remarked how amazing it was that Christians always took care of each other, always saw to one another's needs, to to such a degree that it caught the attention of those non-believers in the community at large. John 13, I think we have a slide of this, John 13, 34 and 35. The words of Jesus himself, right? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. I'm going to just pause there for a second and tell you how I used to interpret that verse. I used to look at that verse as one another means all human beings. You are to love, all you human beings are to love each other. Verse 35, by this All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Is it true that we should love everybody? Yes. Is it true that the church should be a reflection of God's love among non-believers? Yes. But that's not what Jesus was saying in this passage. Jesus was saying that the primary marker, the indicator, how the world will know that you are a Christ follower. It's not about where you go on Sunday morning. That's not the indicator that Jesus said. Jesus said the indicator, how the world will know that you follow Christ is how you love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are so amazed when we think about how you have established your church and how it is our family. God, Many believers who have come before us have turned to you at great cost. Many around the world today are turning to you at great personal cost in the ways that cause strife and turmoil. God, all I ask this morning is that you would help us to see, God, that when you saved us, you saved us into your church. Lord, would you give us your eyes and your heart as we look upon our brothers and sisters? Would you let us see the church through your eyes? God, would you fill us with your spirit that we might love each other? Love each other in the closest possible way, Lord, that so much that even the world will take notice. They'll know that we follow you because we love one another in our new family. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.